The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Welcome to River Cafe Table 4, a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. Okay, let's get the show on the road, shall we? It's now 20 to 6, and people are coming in soon. So the two of you better get going. What are you going to make? Uh, we are making tagliatelle. You happy with that, Chef? I'm more than happy with that. Okay. Chef David. Okay, Chef David. That's Chef good. David is going to cook I've this. I've been called worse. Okay. <laughs> Over the last year, 46 guests have sat at the River Cafe table for, not at the same time, Michael Caine, Jake Gyllenhaal, Nancy Pelosi, Pete Davidson, Paul McCartney, and many, many more. But only one, David Beckham, walked past the bright pink wood oven and headed straight into the kitchen. Give it a really good shake. Yeah, shake it, shake it. There we go. And a bit of parsley. There we are. What do you like cooking at home, David? To be honest, my kids are obsessed with Italian food. They get me to make like a, a ragu. Yeah. Because the kids love so ragu. Could, I could tell when you were shaking the pan that you weren't just a novice. Want a it was, job? It was. Beckham? I, I would Want love a job? a job. I need a job at the You're moment, hired. actually. I'm not I busy now. <laughs> you need a job. We need chefs. Most episodes of River Cafe Table 4 began not with a job offer, but with reading a recipe. And with more than 12 River Cafe books, there were plenty to choose from. Jeff Goldblum's recipe was one of my favorites. So I've got this book in front of me, and I've turned to, I've dog-eared the um, slow-cooked fennel. Well, there's not much to read. It's like a haiku. I see. <laughs> okay, ready? Here's my rendering. Okay. Of it. And if, I, if you don't like it, you can say take. Take two. Well, I, I, wait, I haven't taken one yet. Just a second. Oh, okay, here's take, take, here's take one. You know how many takes uh, Stanley Kubrick would do sometimes for a movie? No, tell me. Famously, 87. Yeah. Okay, come on, read the recipe. You are a good interviewer. I like when the interviewer claps your hands and says, come on, Get let's tough. go. All right, come on there. Okay, here, here, here it goes. Slow-cooked fennel serves six, six fennel bulbs, five tablespoons olive oil. The River Cafe have a dessert, which is my favorite, and it's called... Panna cotta with grappa. This voice, of course, is Michael Keynes. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the recipe in case you want to make it for yourself. Okay? Pour 900 milligrams of cream into a pan, add the vanilla pods, add the lemon rind, bring to the boil, simmer, and reduce by a third. Pass through a sieve, then scrape the seeds from inside the vanilla pods back into the cream and discard the outer pods. Remove the gelatine from the milk. Oh no, now you just played me Michael Caine. How am I supposed to? This is like, how the hell am I supposed to do this? This is. <laughs> but you got tomato sauce. Maybe I should do an intro to it. Okay, I'll do this then. I'm Jake Gyllenhaal, and there is truly nothing like Ruthie's slow cooked tomato sauce. 
Hello, this is Wes Anderson. I'm going to read you the recipe for the River Cafe roast pigeon stuffed with cotechino. You'll need six breast pigeons. That's six pigeons from the breast. I guess these are French pigeons. Now, preheat the oven to 230 degrees Celsius. To make the stuffing, soften the the onion and celery in the two tablespoons of olive oil for 10 minutes. Uh, Remove the skin from the cotechino and crumble the meat with your hands. Add the cotechino and sage to the onion and celery and fry together for a few minutes. Then pour off the fat from the pan and add 250 milliliters red wine and boil to reduce by at least half. Season with black pepper and allow to cool before stuffing into the six birds. Heat the 250 milliliters of olive oil in a roasting tin over a medium-high heat. Then brown each bird all over. Season with sea salt and black pepper and roast for 20 minutes. Pour any excess oil out of the tin, then add the remaining red wine. Over a high heat, reduce that, so we got half the wine still to go, I think, yes. Over a high heat, reduce the liquid by half, so cook it until half it goes away. I think all of the people who cook know this, I don't, I don't know that. Then season with sea salt and black pepper, and then this is your sauce, pour it over the pigeons to serve. Thank you. The food we smell and taste as a child seems imprinted on our memories, and almost every guest took me back to their early years. We heard about family recipes, noisy school canteens, first restaurant meals, and childhood kitchens. Here's Victoria Beckham to start us off. Ruthie, here's a story. My mother, you know what she uses her oven for? Uh, let me guess. Dry her stockings? No, she used it as a filing cabinet. Oh! (laughs) As a filing cabinet, yes. If it didn't go in the microwave, Mrs Adams wasn't interested in it. But this was the 80s when I was growing up, and it was all about microwavable food and all being super, super quick. So, you know, as I began my life in the Spice Girls, we were eating out a lot, going to lovely restaurants, and that was something really quite new. A middle-class family in Mexico growing up in the 60s and the 70s. Alfonso Cuaron told me about growing up in Mexico City. There was still a mentality of making things last. I remember the refrigerator in the kitchen was probably a refrigerator of the 50s. You know, that rattled a lot, by the way. My first memory was a very old woman called Benita. And Benita was the, was the cook. Uh, you know, because she knew how to cook. She was great. But also my grandmother would come with her big book of recipes. Oh. That it was at one of those ancient books. You know? Well, it was not a book. It was a notebook. Mm. It was all written, handwritten, probably from her family, her mom or whatever. It was a very old kind of uh, uh, notebook. And she would go through the pages and find like the recipe that was going to be for that day. So that means that so those recipes will come from, from way before. It's interesting because yesterday I, I, I did a conversation with Salman Rushdie. Mm-hmm. And so there's someone who grew up in Bombay with a book like that in his kitchen. Middle-class kitchens, kitchens which, which employ 
cooks, there's always a, a copy book, as it's called, hanging on a hook. And in that book are the recipes of the family. Right. And I've always thought if somebody could just go and yeah. gather the recipes in those yeah. coffee books, that would be the yeah. greatest Indian cookbook of all. You know? but, do you remember your grandmother? Did, was your mother's mother a cook? Yeah, my mother's mother was not a cook. My mother's mother sort of shouted at cooks. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In what way do you think? She knew what she wanted, but she well, didn't Well, yeah, she was it. a grumpy old lady. You know? mm. and I don't know. I wouldn't have liked to be cooking in her kitchen. Oh, really? And what about your mother and her? Do you but my mother was a very gentle person, you know. And, and I also had an ayah, a, a nanny from South India, came from Mangalore, which has its own very distinctive cooking. Her kind of pickles and chutneys got into Midnight's Children because I grew up on those. There was a particular green chutney, which is which is famously in the book. It was just a, a lot of green things chopped up with a lot of chilies. It was a very particular South Indian recipe mm. that um, that arrived in our house through her. Uh, Goan, South Indian ayah, Mary Menezes, she was called, lived to 102. Did she? Yeah, spoke seven languages and was illiterate. There's a line somewhere in Midnight's Children where, where the character, the narrator, talks about stirring feelings into mm-hmm. food. And uh, I always believe that, that if you're in a good mood, mm. the food tastes one way, mm. and if you're in a bad mm. mood, the food tastes another way. You know? and that sense of, of emotion, your, your own emotion, getting into the cooking you know, is something I always thought. Did your mother put emotion into her cooking? Yeah. I mean, yeah. she actually... She wasn't like a great chef, but she enjoyed it. Yeah. She enjoyed it. So the food was enjoyable. But cooking for family is not only enjoyable, it can also stir up complex emotions. Here's Nigella Lawson talking about her mother. She married very young. Mm. She was 19. Mm. 19. Mm. And had her first child at 20, mm. you know, my older brother. She felt things very deeply, but didn't always express it. Mm. Um, so would erupt mm. quite a bit. Mm. And, um, you know, she was fantastically impatient. And I, one of the jobs we had to do, my sister Thomasina, we used to have to make mayonnaise together. And one of us would whisk and one would pour the oil <laughs> and... Whoever was whisking, you know, you weren't whisking fast yeah. enough. And whoever was pouring, you weren't Too whisking fast. slowly. Slow enough, yeah. you, were, you weren't slowly <laughs> yeah. enough. And the tension, you know, so it's so difficult because I remember what I learned. And I remember being in the kitchen with, with fondness and gratitude. And yet it would be so unfaithful to the truth if yeah. I didn't say it was also a source of great tension. Yeah. I mean, it was frightening. But... But I think that, but I think I did learn a lot, and she was a very spontaneous cook. Yeah, but imagine being nineteen and or mm. twenty, and having to embrace motherhood and domestic life and cook. Do you think she liked cooking? Did she like it? She was it did a and didn't. I associate my mother with food, and yet she had a very troubled relationship and had um, eating disorders, which yeah. I didn't really. Think I didn't really take on board until I was in my teens, I think, mm. and I don't know when it started. Right. And it was difficult because it it was really a repudiation of something that gave her pleasure. Yeah. And the heartbreaking thing is, you know, she she died when she was forty eight, and yeah. she hit pretty quickly because she got diagnosed. Well, she didn't get diagnosed. I was told by the doctor three weeks before she died. I didn't tell her until two weeks because I was mm. waiting a mm. bit. 
um, just to get it for, mm. you know, more tests mm. and things. Um, and she said it was the first time, being terminally ill was the first time she could eat without anxiety or yeah, guilt. Oh yeah. I mean, that's... that's and I think that... It's so on the one hand, you know, uh, I've learnt everything about what cooking is from her. Mm. Not everything. Mm. I've learnt from you, I've learnt mm. from Anna Del Conte, mm. I've learnt mm. from Claudia Roden. <laughs> but I also learned what path I didn't want to go down, yeah. and it wasn't that one. Was your father... Did he, did he ever cook? No. Never went he, he in the didn't. kitchen? He didn't. Occasionally, later on, mm. he would make his own breakfast. Breakfast, yeah. yeah, yeah. Which I think is quite an old-fashioned male yeah. thing to do, yeah. that somehow they, yeah. they don't feel, you know, yeah. cooking eggs is yeah. too That's much okay. of a dent to their dignity. Yeah. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Help helps is a maxim I believe in. We all carry around stress and hardship, and when we keep it inside, it starts to chip away. Therapy is a safe place, and therapy is for everyone. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash Ruthie today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Ruthie. Betterhelp.com slash Ruthie. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. My dad came here in 1948 right. on a £10 ticket from Cyprus. And then my mum's a gypsy, so it's yeah. really quite exotic, actually. This is the artist Tracy Emin. Up until we were about six, we would go to Turkey regularly, once oh. a year. And we spent, um, when we were really tiny, we spent two periods of six months there. Once when I was about three or four, and then another time when I was six, we spent six months there. And, and all that time it would have been Mediterranean food and Mediterranean cooking. And, and we used to drive to, to Turkey, and my, this is really cool. My, we used to have, in the back of the our car, we had a Zodiac. We had these little tiny wooden chairs, you know, with the um, wrapper to yeah. seats. And my dad just, we had a brand new Zodiac, my dad just stuck a hole through the roof, through the, the you know, the bits, and then got bungee elastic things around the chairs and then just sat us in the back of the car bouncing up and we were twins bouncing up and down on these chairs with those little noddy dogs and we'd drive to Turkey and we'd stop on the way all, all the time and my dad would get the Kalagas stove out and fry eggs and cook and everything and and we'd go 
go to fields and take watermelons and and things so it was really exciting and like adventurous these drives and I'm being I'm romanticizing about it now because it is romantic and it was different and it was different from everybody else's upbringing that I knew and so we went from that to this like to squatting in a cottage and my mum working in a hotel as a waitress and a chambermaid and so it was like from high to low, really fast, a reversal of fortune. When you were having to cook for yourselves, did you, or what, did you eat? What did you do <laughs> no, when there was mom, nobody so my cooking? Mom, so my mum was out a lot, most of the time working, and at weekends as well, she'd be out till three in the morning. So we were on our own, and often my mum would leave us sandwiches and whatever, but my big thing was just like orange, just orange squash. Oh. And um, just tons of orange squash and sitting up at night crocheting in bed and we and also for example like Christmas like you said about this a lot of this podcast is about people sitting around the table and remembering Mm. it oh there was no sitting around the table for me Mm. it was sitting and watching the telly with a tray with egg and chips you know when my mum come home and Christmas was not Christmas we didn't have Christmas because my mum was always working our Christmas was like a week after and kind of cobbled together but it was never going to feel the same as the real Christmas and one I remember we had Salvation Army one year you know coming around with food and presents because we didn't have anything my mum if she didn't work we had nothing and that is a very different upbringing to a lot of people I know the singer Rag and Bone Man shared a fantastic story of childhood ingenuity yeah, there's a truth to this story. Uh, in, in the summer, the kids from our street, um, we used to get, sometimes get together. and we, So we had a house full of instruments. We had guitars that were hanging on the walls, and sometimes there were old crappy ones that no one mm. played anymore, or an or a, um, old keyboard that doesn't really work. Um, we, we would get our, those instruments and put them out on the front lawn open the windows and play like whatever music it was through the stereo as loud as possible mm. and act like we were playing it and put a basket there in, in front of us <laughs> to ask for money so we could go and buy ice cream from the ice cream van. Did it work? Um, it did. I mean, people came out and gave us money. I think we made, made enough to get some ice cream. That's the version of I yeah. grew up, you know, selling I mean, lemonade when I was a kid. You know, we'd yeah. make lemonade and then yeah. put a table on the front lawn and at five cents, please. Yeah, yeah. we were like busking to like Guns N' Roses. For Afwa Hirsch, the scent of food was almost more important than the taste of food. I remember so clearly I didn't go to Ghana until I was 14. And my first memory was stepping off the plane and two things hit me. The first was the heat, and the second thing was the smell. And the smell has never left me, and I still, every time I go to Ghana, am instantly hit with this intoxicating smell. And I've tried to work out what it is. I think it's a combination of just heat and sea air, because it's very, the capital is on the coast, Mm -hmm. and it's it's a quite rough Atlantic coast. There's a lot of sea breeze and mist and salt in the air. And then one of my favourite Ghanaian dishes, which because the, t- the BA flight from Ghana lands basically at dusk. Right. And at dusk is when um, food vendors in the city start selling this after-work snack, which they fry outside. It's called keloele. And it's 
ripe plantain diced that's seasoned with ginger, black pepper, tiny bit of nutmeg, chili and salt. And then it's deep fried absolutely delicious i made yeah. some last night actually so you, see, you season it first and then you do you fry. season it and then, and then you, you do take fry. it out and you eat it hot yeah you cold? eat it hot yeah and it's street food it's it? street food yeah. and that makes the entire city have a mm. fragrance of kind of slightly sweet spicy nutmeggy yeah. air and i i honestly think it's it's a little hint on the air in accra Glenn Close spent part of her childhood in Africa and can still remember the plaintive cries of the family chicken. We had a rooster called Pretzel, and he would crow during the night. And um, my brother cut a, a oil drum in half and cleaned it out. And at night, Pretzel would be put under the oil drum, but you still could hear him going, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> finally... Finally, everybody thought it was time for pretzel to be butchered, and he was, and he was put in the freezer. And then I happened to be there when they brought pretzel out and said, let's let's roast pretzel. And he was inedible. You couldn't even get a knife into him. I thought it was pretzel's revenge. Do you remember going to markets in Tehran? Were there beautiful markets? markets. Oh, well, actually, no, I did. They're called bazaars. Christiane Amanpour grew up in Tehran. I mean, if anybody's been to the Great Bazaar in, in Istanbul, imagine that in all the other Middle Eastern yeah. countries. And we used to go. I do remember um, my mother would do the shopping, obviously. I would just be amazed by the color and the vibrancy and the, I want this and I want that, even if I didn't know what it was. <laughs> I'm afraid that the men at that time were very cheeky and, yeah. and quite intrusive. So I used to go not knowing any better in my shorts or my short skirt or whatever and, and get my bum pinched. That was quite de rigueur in those days. My mom told me from now on I had to bring a flip-flop, you know, a sandal, yeah. hold it behind my bum, and if anybody dared, boom, really? you know, bang that. them. <laughs> it really worked. Yeah, no. mm. I, I can't remember when I discovered pasta, mm. but I can remember when I discovered pasta and risotto. Norman Foster, one of my oldest friends. I was a student, and I'd cycled and um, ended up in M Milan. And I associated rice with rice pudding, which was oh, sweet and sickly and really, for me, not very nice. And I discovered rice and pasta and it was just a, a great discovery that was a very very long time ago how old were you then ah oh, i must have been in my teens paul mccartney and john lennon were also intrepid teenagers here's paul recalling their first trip abroad john and i hitchhiked to paris he got given a fabulous birthday present by his rich relatives in scotland and one of them gave him £100 for his birthday. Yeah. You know, I mean, I still think that's a reasonable gift. It's very reasonable. You know, 100 <laughs> quid, I'll have it. Anyway, so we hitchhiked to Paris and then we used the money to get food and stuff. And we thought, oh, we've got to have a wine experience. We're in France, you know. So we went into a cafe, corner cafe, and we sort of sidled up to the bar and said, Du verre van ordinaire, s'il vous plaît. <laughs> Thank you. And she gave us two glasses of red wine. 
Um, we took a sip and thought, oh, that is terrible. It's like vinegar. <laughs> God, I don't know what the fuss is about. All these people going on about wine, they're crazy, we're sane. So we never liked wine till we got down to London. And the first time I ever remember really liking wine, it was with George Martin. My girlfriend at the time was Jane Asher. Mm-hmm. And Jane and I went out with George and his wife, Judy. And we went to a little restaurant in Charlotte Street called L'Etoile. Oh, I know L'Etoile. You probably know that. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. I was treating. So the waiter, the wine waiter, sommelier, came up to me and said, would you like a wine, sir? He leaned in, Mm. all very intimate. And I sort of equally whispering, I said, I'd like you to recommend something. I don't know much about wine. He said, oh, yes, sir. Thank you very much. Leave it to me. And then he brought back a bottle of Louis Latour's Corton Grancy, 1959. And I took a taste of it. Oh, it was like velvet. Was it? And I thought, now I get it. And I see why people go crazy about wine. I think, in a way, we all love food because Richard was a great eater. My husband Richard was also a great lover of restaurants as our son Rue remembers. I do really think that being a great eater is a really fundamental skill. It can be very frustrating, right? Because everything is being analyzed all the time. But it is a very beautiful thing because you're constantly searching for that new taste and that new experience. And anything else is, is not exciting for that. I mean, I remember the Michelin Guide with yellow post-it notes and written notes and, I mean, like, obsession and then, like, going into bookstores and saying, we found this restaurant but we haven't been, do you recommend it? Like, the amount of diligence we did just to have lunch because Dad wanted a great meal and you, you wanted to make that possible, but you, you know, and we did it. And so I think a lot of that sort of, you know, curiosity and food cooking and food quality comes from Dad's real keenness and passion for eating. Actually, it's interesting you say that because I do remember that we used to... He had this theory, I don't know where it came from, that if you wanted to find a good restaurant, you always asked at a bookstore <laughs> that there was a... People who loved books would probably know where to eat. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. 
Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The River Cafe is 35 years old, and the subject of restaurants is close to my heart. Planning menus, juggling staff rotas, sourcing ingredients, most of all, cooking, a restaurant is all-consuming. On River Cafe, Table 4, we shared our restaurant memories. Let's start with comedian Pete Davidson. There is quite a lot of drama going on in a restaurant, do you oh, think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm. I mean, when I worked in a restaurant, it was for like three or four years, but the busboys hated the waiters, mm. and the waiters hated the busboys. Mm. I mean, like, after work... They all work, hated the chefs. Yeah, and they yeah. all hated the chefs. But after work, everything was fine. Yeah. Everybody was, like, cool. But yeah. during work, yeah. it was like, we're going to be in each other's faces all day. Yeah. You know, but my favorite thing was always sneaking off in the back and eating whatever somebody didn't eat. Oh, really? Yeah. Off somebody's plate? Yeah. yeah. I, I, didn't, I didn't give a shit. Other no. people would be like, you're gross. And I'd be like, it's chicken palm. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> well, yeah. tell me about the restaurant you worked in. What, uh, it's what was called it? Nucci South. It's in Staten Island. It's right under uh, the bridge. My dad's good friend runs it. Uh, it's, it's like pretty well known on the island and well respected. And they serve classic Italian food. And, you know, they have a playlist of 60 songs on a loop. And it's... All Frank Sinatra. That's Amore? Yeah, all day. Can you, can you sing that's Amore? Oh, I, I, I burned it out of my brain. I, I used that, to be able to tell what time it was in the restaurant by no. what song was playing. Like what? What songs would they the play? same playlist. I mean, um, just like... Fly Me to the Moon. Yeah, Fly Me to the Moon. Just like every... And yeah, and I would hear that every six hours. So like if I Fly Me to the Moon came yeah. back, you, I would know we were halfway through <laughs> with the day. Stanley Tucci and Darren Walker, CEO of the Ford Foundation, look back at long shifts in restaurant kitchens or waiting on tables. And many guests swap stories of eating out, whether in Michelin-starred restaurants, backstreet bars, or beach shacks. Here's David Beckham talking about a Paris restaurant we both love. One of my favourite restaurants in the world is Lamy Louis. Yeah, tell me, I, uh, I agree. You know, all the waiters are dressed in those white jackets and whether you're wearing a bomber jacket or whether the most elegant lady walks in in a Chanel coat, they take your coat off, they fold it up and they throw it above the head on the on It's like a train carriage, isn't it? It's like a train carriage. And my record for eating escargot is I've eaten 32 escargots no. at one dinner. To the listener, can I tell you, those are big, escargot. Big. I've had them many times. They're big, and they come on trays of six or nine, I think, yeah. and they come. And I was in there for about four hours with wow. Victoria once, and we had the most amazing wine and everything about that restaurant. And the pommes frites, the little the the potatoes oh, and just the potatoes. The bread yeah. and oh, everything about it. It's mm. just, yeah, unbelievable. When you go to a restaurant, what do you look for? Do you look for the food, the atmosphere, the people, the energy? I look for the vibe. Darren Walker. And the vibe to me <laughs> includes, what does it smell like? Mm-hmm. What does the menu look like? What is the decor? I mean, for me, I really like energy. Mm-hmm. Some people 
for example, say, oh, this restaurant's too loud. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I like a loud restaurant. Yeah. If I want an intimate dinner, yeah. yes, I'll choose something that is quiet with very little background noise. But if I want to have a great evening, I'll book a table at Balthazar. Mm-hmm. Or it's loud. Mm-hmm. It's boisterous. Yeah. It feels like New York on steroids. Yeah. That's why I live in New York. Yeah. To drink New York from the fire hose. Jude Law filmed the talented Mr. Ripley in Italy. What was it like being in Positano? Did you stay there when you were doing Ripley? Was that... Um, was that we weren't there so long. And uh, my memory of Ripley is more on the island of Ischia. Oh, I've never been there. That's where off we Naples, shot. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, just off Naples and next to Capri and Progida. Mm. And uh, we found this extraordinary restaurant right on the sea. And it was almost as if they could sort of fish mm. out of the back window and cook what they caught, you know. We just sort of, as a crew, took that over and it became the sort of heart of um, the film, really. Everyone would congregate there after a day's shooting and, um, and eat wonderful fresh fish food. Something that's really nice in Ghana now is it's all about chefs making food in their homes, mm. especially during this COVID time, for just like for just two or three people. The architect, David Ajay. And that's been kind of amazing to experience. You just get like half a dozen people invited and it's in the garden because the weather's so great. It's socially distanced in the garden. You know, there's a chef called Selassie and she has a kind of pop-up comedy and she's doing incredible things with Ghanaian food. Mm. So she's been a kind of, whenever she does, we'll run to yeah. go eat. So this idea of like eating in a place where, you know, where somebody really, I, you know, I think the best way to describe it is that where the food is heart, you know, it's not just product, not just stuff. Like exactly what you do, you sort of mm. taught the world that, Ruthie, and I think it's it's going round. I, I see versions of you ah. <laughs> in the younger generations all around as they try to really connect with food in a much more powerful way. Well, I think that is, you know, what does it mean to go to a restaurant? What does it mean to go with your friends? It's and something we've all missed enormously. Mm. Certainly, when people have come back to the River Cafe, having been away for so long, it's quite emotional. Mm being in a room with people. Do you like, is there a certain restaurant you'd like or don't like that you feel comfortable in? Yeah, I'm very specific about the kinds of places that I like and don't like, yeah. Let's go for the positive. What do you like in a restaurant? I like it to have a certain kind of authenticity, to feel like it's not trying to bamboozle me with effects, but it's confident in itself and it's um, trying to reflect a little bit of what its culture is. And what about designing? Because you're an art, you've designed yeah. public buildings. What restaurants have you designed that you... I haven't designed a restaurant yet, but I'm right now designing the restaurant for Princeton Art Museum. That's, that's probably the closest I'm getting to my first ever restaurant, actually, ironically. Do you know what it will be like, the restaurant in the museum? Um, yeah, it's trying to really, uh, this, the, the things I said, have a certain kind of quality that has a certain sort of openness. It kind of has its own terrace. So it's open onto a really beautiful terrace that overlooks the grounds. Mm. Trying to make it feel not in any way that it's exclusive, but it has a kind of egalitarian quality, but it's really good quality. Mm. So it has a kind mm. of quality in the kind of pieces that are around you, the things that you touch, the things that you kind of are next to. Mm. But it also kind of honors the idea of food, that it has a certain ritual quality to it as well. I think that that's really lovely in uh-huh. a restaurant, that it feels like a ritual. You come usually on a Wednesday or Thursday. You always yeah. sit on table four yeah. and you always sit at the same seat. And I was just wondering how you feel about 
restaurants and food. Well, I love restaurants. I've owned a couple. Michael Caine again. I don't use restaurants for occasions. Yeah. Restaurants are a part of my life. Tell us about Jason's. Jason's was almost like a club. I used to go there every Friday, and you look around the room, and Alfred Hitchcock was always sitting there. Cary Grant was over there, <laughs> you know, and it, it was one of those incredible places, you know, with stars everywhere. Mm. Just all the movie stars I've been seeing in movies all my life. The restaurant I know best is, of course, the River Cafe. And in the next episode, I'll be talking to executive chefs Sean Winowen and Joseph Trevelli. We'll also hear more food memories and stories from my guests at Table 4 as we talk about the joy, the comfort, and the politics of food. To play us out, here's Rag and Bone Man. You make me happy when skies are gray. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. <laughs> Do you want to come on tour? To visit the online shop of the River Cafe, go to shoptherivercafe.co.uk. River Cafe Table 4 is a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at betterhelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. 
Right Rug Flooring.